0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Many of us may know the broad outline of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, But for most of us, the details, the the below-the-headline names, the level of malevolent violence, and the horrific sacrifices were at best vague. But David Dennis Jr. in his new book, The Movement Made Us, poignantly and vividly gives us an intimate portrait of the personal side of the civil rights movement. David wrote this book in collaboration with his father, David Dennis Sr. His father had a pivotal role in the civil rights movement as an organizer and hero of the Freedom Rides, lunch counter sit-ins and voter registration drives, as well as an official of the Congress of Racial Equity. Dennis Sr.'s story exposes the risk, the relationships and repercussions on families and lives that brings the movement to life for us. David Jr.'s skill as an award-winning journalist and educator creates these stories of his father in the movement that has lingered in my mind and forced me to rethink today's movement for Black rights and safety. I am delighted to welcome David Dennis to Just the Right Book.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I I just was mesmerized uh, by the book, David, and one of the things that Might not be the reaction that people would think that really made me smile. Is your father talks about first getting involved in the movement because he wanted a date with Doris Castle. And then he quickly pivoted to an all in member of the movement, willing to risk his life. What motivated him at that moment to give up his? You know, he had a plan for an engineering degree and a life of stability. And progress, and then he pivots. W- what happened?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you, you sort of, uh, you, you hit it right. Like he was, you know, got to Dillard University as, uh, you know, the first person in, in my family to, to graduate high school, to go to college, and he wanted to be an engineer. That was his goal. He was gonna, he'd heard about movement talk. There had been a couple sit-ins that they were starting up back in New Orleans, but he wanted no part of it, right? Um, then he sees this this uh beautiful woman on campus, Doris Castle, and does not really care what she's talking about. It turns out <laughs> she is talking about, you know joining up in the in the movement. He didn't care he wanted to go on a date, right? But in order to go on this date, he had to start going to these core meetings. and um that was sort of the the way that they got one of the ways that got people to to show up. They knew that uh, that that was one of doris's assets and so they knew that people would show up and that that was how they got him he came to the went to the meetings and he participated sort of at an arm's length in terms of the movement work he knew he was not going to get arrested he wanted to finish school but he would go um learn about what they were talking about help with some of the picket signs help with the training and then go back about his day he was not going to get um arrested uh, but eventually, they sort of get him, they sort of wear down on him, and he uh, does a, a a protest. He does get arrested, um, but he's still sort of, you know, that was one time, he's still sort of not interested. I'm not getting
0: arrested again.
1: <laughs> right, not getting arrested again, still has his eye on on the schoolwork. Then the freedom riots happen, and um he, you know, there, the New Orleans was going to be the final destination of those Freedom Rides in 61. Dad was going to be part of the welcoming committee. Um, the riders, um, as many people know, in Alabama got, you know, brutally beaten, um, attacked in, in Birmingham and Aniston. They were going to, uh, elders sort of wanted to cancel the Freedom Rides after that, you know, not continue it. The, the youth, the college students really wanted to want to keep going. Um, so, a crew out of Nashville, led by Diane Nash, and the crew out of New Orleans, led by Rheta Castle, uh, went to to Alabama to Montgomery to argue about continuing the ride. My dad ended up on that um, in that group by another um, sort of happenstance. He ended up in that in that crew. Um, still not interested going on the Freedom Rides then when they were deciding on what to do, he heard somebody in the room say, there's no space in this room for both uh, God and fear. And for some reason that triggered this thing in him that made him fully dedicated to this movement work. He volunteered to get in the Freedom Rise, and he really sort of wasn't looking, no, no looking back after that.
0: You, one of the comments that you made in telling this piece of the story reminded me of another Another aspect that uh, surprised me, and that is the role of what you call the elders and the student activists. And what made me think about it was this, I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, interviewed Elizabeth Alexander for her book, The Trayvon Generation. And Mm -hmm. one of the documentaries that she mentions is King in the Wilderness, which Mm -hmm. uh, was done by Peter Kuhnhardt and is a just a brilliant documentary that portrayed sort of the fear and and the wearing down of Martin Luther King. It was a very personal portrait of him. But in the book, you tell the story about a meeting where Martin Luther King did not have his audience there, that the Mm. students were in a very different place. Tell us what was going on there in terms of what the student activists wanted, what Martin Luther King wanted, and the other factions that were all also involved in the movement.
1: Yeah, so this this meeting um, we're talking about is is, um, to, Decide on if they're going to continue the freedom rides or not. Right. um The the violence that uh, the the violence that happened. I mean, it was uh, you know nobody died, but it was about as close to, close to a lynching as you can get without people being killed in Anniston and Birmingham. I mean, there were they bombed the buses. It was you know brutally violent, and so you know Dr. King and some of the others were of the mind of let's not continue the rides until things are you know are safer and the 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 students the young folks were really you know they were very into direct action and they were saying we cannot stop these rides now we cannot you know we can't let those you know these folks feel like they won and so there was this sort of clash this generational clash in this meeting of, of whether to continue the rides or not and one of the pro one of the issues that that dr king had was that uh, I think once the decision was made to continue the rides was if he would be on them or not. Right. Um, and you know, his issue, one of the problems that he had was that um, he had already had a warrant or um, he'd already been um, arrested somewhere else. And so this was going to, if he got arrested on on at the end of this freedom ride which was surely going to happen um, if they survived. Uh, I mean, he was looking at a, lo- a lot of jail time. And so, strategically, the idea was that you cannot let Dr. King, you know, go to jail for that that long. He's a pivotal part of this movement. So some of the folks felt, especially the young people who also had uh, were out on bail and had warrants and things like that, felt as though this was sort of the older folks sort of, you know, setting themselves apart from everybody else and feeling that they were more important than them. And um, you know, Dr. King was was at that moment. Used to captivating rooms, used to having these audiences that follow him. But this was prob- this was a contentious meeting where he was probably he was a target of a lot of people feeling sort of disenfranchised. The idea of of Dr. King,
0: right? But but they obviously went on. The student activists won out, and you know one of the things that you do so brilliantly in the book is reveal the toll Mm -hmm. that this movement took on your dad and um, other folks that were involved. And in the prologue to the book, you talk about an old VHS tape of uh, James Baldwin, that interviewed your father and revealed a father that was quite different from the father you grew up with. Share with us which David Dennis Sr. was in that tape?
1: So this was a video, um, this is a documentary James Baldwin did in the early 80s, um, I think 81 or so, where he just sort of went back to the South and interviewed some of his friends that he'd made in, in the movement. Um, you know, he went to New Orleans, he interviewed over castle and Jerome Smith, and he, he interviewed Dad, who um, I think came to Mississippi. Um, for the interview, and this was probably the first time my dad had been back to Mississippi since nineteen sixty-four. Um, and that person was different from the dad that I knew. I mean, he was um so angry, so almost um you know broken uh by this by you know revisiting this 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 movement space. I mean, he was. They were talking about Goodman, Cheney and Schwerner, and how many bodies that they had um, found while looking for those three men, he was, you know, filled with anger, filled with disappointment, almost dejected at, at the state of, of things and going back to that space. Um, and watching that video with somebody, you know, that was a a time period that I, of a, of a man that I didn't know, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. born until 86. I didn't know about this person who spent his time between you know the 60s movement and him coming back in the 90s to mississippi i didn't know that person and so to watch that sort of revealed to me just how deeply hurt and you know deeply you know just impacted he was by by his time in the movement
0: and in the in the interview that i watched um where you and your dad were together he he seemed so emotional at even thinking about the damage that had been done to him to others um in the movement and so when you it, it reminds me it reminds me of of this david there was a um quote or it was a response to a question there was the son of an assassinated human rights worker from Africa and his father he was a young boy when his father was assassinated and he was asked if he resented that his father had sacrificed his life um and and thereby depriving his family of his father and his answer was there are some parents who protect their children from the world and there are some parents who make the world safe for their children mm-hmm. and you know when you talk about the that you know when i think you say in the 60s your father sacrificed his life for the movement and in, this, and in the 90s, he sacrificed his family. I mean, how did his role in the movement affect your relationship with him?
1: Well, the, um, what, what made it so com- complex was that we moved to Mississippi in, in 92 when I was six years old.
0: You're a young man. You're in your 30s somewhere, right? Yeah, I'm 30,
1: 36. Yes, I'm 36. Yeah, so. You're,
0: that's young. Um, that's really young. <laughs>
1: I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't feel like it every day, so I'll take it. Uh, I'll, I'll hold on to that. Um, okay. Yeah, so we, we moved to Mississippi um, in, in 92, and that was, you know, I, that was my childhood. I lived in Mississippi till I was 18, and my dad... Um, that was his first time returning to the state since the 60s. And so my childhood was formed by this man who was trying to grapple with coming back to a to a war zone, right? Mm-hmm. That, he, that some of the most difficult traumatic moments in his life took place in. And you know, you go to Jackson and you drive by Meg River's house, is still there. You drive by the Masonic Temple where his office was, and the Kofo office was across the street. these monuments are still there, and he was returning for the first time while reengaging with this movement work with Bob Moses, the Algebra Project. And you know, for me as a child to see that I was, you know my my dad just seemed busy doing something that was more important, you know, like I just saw movement work as something that was more like, I I didn't, you know, why, I don't want to ask him to, you know, take away from this vastly important world-saving thing to pay attention to me, you know, right? and, um, you know, he traveled, he was gone a lot, and there was, you know, it was, it was difficult, you know, it was difficult to grapple with, and it wasn't really until we started working on the book that I understood exactly that this was what was going on, that he was, revisiting this 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 past for the first time
0: So one of the one of the pieces I want to make sure um, we get to is a pivotal moment in the civil rights uh, movement was your father's eulogy at the funeral of uh, James Cheney who along with Mickey Schwerner and Andrew Goodman were murdered in Neshoba County because of their attempts to get Blacks registered as voters. And it's a very powerful eulogy. And I wonder, and you have um, you have uh, it in, in the book. I wonder if you would read a little piece of that um, so that our audience can understand how what he said impacted the movement at that moment. So if you would read that for us.
1: All right. You see, we're all tired. You see, I know what's going to happen. I felt it deep in my heart. When they find the people who killed these guys in Neshoba County, you've got to come back to the state of Mississippi and have a jury of their cousins, their aunts, and their uncles. And I know what they're going to say, not guilty, because no one saw them pull the trigger. I'm tired of that. We can't take it any longer and be wiped off the face of the earth. I look at the people of gray hair down there, down here. The tiredness in the faces. And I think about the millions of bowls of cotton that you picked, the millions of actions it took to chop it for $10 a week, $25 a week, or whatever you could get to eat. I watched the people here who go out there and wash dishes and cook for the whites in the community, the same ones who come right out and say, I can't sit and I can't sit down and eat beside a nigger. I'm tired of that, you see. I'm tired of him talking about how much he hates me. And he can't stand for me to go to school with his children and all of that. Yeah, when he wants someone to babysit for him, he gets my black mammy to hold that baby. And as long as he can do that, he can sit down beside me. He can watch me go up there and register to vote. He can watch me take some type of public office in the state. And he can sit down as I rule over him, just as he's ruled over me for years. This is our country, too. We didn't ask to come here when they brought us over here. I'm sick of hearing over and over again that I should go back to Africa. Well, I'm ready to go back to Africa, baby, when all the Jews and the Poles, the Russians, the Germans all go back to where they come from, too, you see, and they have to remember that they took this land from the Indians, and just as much as it's theirs, it's ours too now. We've got to stand up. The best thing that we can do for Mr. Cheney, for Mickey Schwerner, for Andrew Goodman is stand up and demand our rights, demand, say, baby, I'm here. Don't just look at me and the people here and go back and say that you've been a, to a nice service. A lot of people came. There were a lot of hot blasted newsmen around, anything like that. But your work is just beginning. I'm going to tell you deep down in my heart what I feel right now. If you go back home and sit down and take it, goddamn your souls. Stand up. Your neighbors down there who are too afraid to come to this memorial, take them to another memorial. Make them register to vote and you're registered to vote too. I doubt if one fourth of this house is registered. Go down there and do it. Don't bow down anymore. Hold your heads up. We want our freedom now. I don't want to have to go to another memorial. I'm tired of funerals. Tired of them. We've got to stand up. I'm tired of funerals. We've got to stand up. I'm tired of funerals. We want our freedom now. Stand up.
0: So they didn't want your father to give that kind of eulogy. They wanted something you know, calmer, settle everybody down. Your father as as was clear in that passage, was sick and tired of the of of being asking for quiet and peace. so what was the reaction to that eulogy?
1: well that oh well, I think um you know I think to I should backtrack a little bit and, and mention that Dad was supposed to be in the car with Goodman Cheney and Schwerner mm.
2: um,
1: and you know was only by uh, a Bronchitis and Mickey Schwerner telling my dad that he was too sick to ride with them. Um, essentially, is the only reason he wasn't in that car. So he was feeling all of that and a lot of other things at that moment that he gave that eulogy. And they wanted him to do sort of this kumbaya peaceful eulogy because uh, they wanted the Freedom Summer to go off without a hitch. They didn't want any more sort of drama or anything like that. But what he what by delivering that eulogy, what he did was told the rest of the country exactly the kind of violence in life that was going on in Mississippi. Like you could not deny that there was terrorism happening and a war was going on right here in the United States, if, you know, by listening to what he said and detailing exactly what these men and women in this state were going through just trying, just for trying to register to vote. We
0: will be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds, anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn songwriting from John Legend, improve your writing skills with Amy Tan, or learn how to cook the perfect poached egg from Gordon Ramsay. With over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. I loved exploring Chris Hadfield's course on space exploration. I was blown away by the insider access we got into, what it's like to train as an astronaut, especially what it feels like to launch in a space rocket. You see it in the movies all the time, but to hear it step by step was completely new for me. And then diving deeper into how rockets are fueled and how much it all costs. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every class. And as a Just a Write Book listener, you get fifteen percent off in the annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash writebook now. That's masterclass.com slash R-I-G-H-T B-O-O-K for 15% off masterclass. Just like the best books, the best TV has great writing, great characters, and great stories. And some of the best stories of all time have come from the pens and typewriters of Britain's female mystery writers. That's why I'm loving BritBox, the streaming service created by the BBC and ITV. With BritBox, Britain's queens of crime are streaming all in one place. Agatha Christie, Anne Cleves, Val McDermid, Kate London, these writers are the brains behind so many of British TV's best series. From familiar favorites like Poirot and Miss Marple to smash hits like Shetland, Vera, Karen Peary, The Tower, and so many more. All streaming now on Britbox. I don't even know where to start on what we watch all the time at home. It's usually my accompaniment right before bed. Um, Everything from Vera... And how brilliant Brenda Blethyn plays that role to the kind of quiet burn that Shetland really drives until you get to the last couple episodes. And it's just twist after twist after twist. And I think there's no other place that you can see more Agatha Christie adaptations. So sign up for BritBox today to check out the She Wrote Murder collection of Britain's best Book the Screens adaptations. I have a special limited time offer for our listeners. 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan but only if you go to britbox.com and use my promo code book at checkout don't wait get 50% off your first month use promo code book b o o k at britbox.com
0: and and one of the other passages to sort of Linked this that was, uh, that I I felt sick reading was about the time that Fannie Lou Hamer Hamer is it Hamer he, or Hammer
1: Hamer Hamer yeah Hamer
0: was arrested and the gratuitous violence and humiliation that she endured and I think many of us may not have even known her name before uh, we read this would you share with our audience just what an important person she was in the civil rights movement
1: yeah um Fannie Lou Hamer was the backbone of the mississippi movement and really the the entire movement you know at the time i mean she was a uh, sharecropper who um you know had you know i think eighth grade education and she was just this powerhouse. I mean, she was wise. She just had this uh, way of thinking about structures and thinking about things, uh, organizing in a way that was extremely useful to the, to the movement. Everybody listened to her. And so um, once, one, you know, one time when she was taking a a trip uh, with the SCLC, uh, she was, they were intercepting Winona and, they, and she was brutally beaten. I mean, she was tortured in this jail so uh almost the point of death and, and had injuries that she really never recovered from. Um, and, and it was her and a bunch of teenagers, really. And uh that was honestly the probably the hardest part of the book to write or to research or to read yeah. and understand about uh, exactly what happened to her. I mean, they they um what they did to this woman was almost unspeakable. Mm-hmm. And um through that all, she made her way to the 1964 Democratic National Convention and delivered this speech that was so powerful that that the president was scared for the country to hear the speech you know like he did not want everybody to hear exactly what uh people in mississippi were going through and you know it was so powerful and her movement work was so powerful that she was in you know in the rooms in that and that convention dictating united states policy right she was determining uh what you know, uh, if if they were going to accept sort of this, the amount of delegates that they were offered, and she refused, and everybody followed her lead, um, a- along with um you know Victoria Gray and Anne Divine, they followed their leads because these were the uh, the you know matriarchs of the movement really, and you know Mrs. Hamer is sort of the story of what is possible for anybody who's involved in movement work. I mean, she like to be a black woman sharecropper in Mississippi who had been Given an involuntary um, hysterectomy, uh, you know, while she was uh, in for you know a regular medical procedure, who had been brutally beaten, who had been you know kicked off of her her land, um, to rise to the level of of power that she had in the movement in this country, I think is is probably one of the more more powerful stories that show us exactly what's what you can do if you you know what, what anybody in this country could could do.
0: Yeah, I, I was riveted. I mean, I was riveted by a lot of the stories um, of people that I had not heard of. But when I think of the her arc, just as you so perfectly summarized now to the point of her at the 64 convention and, and you know, at the 64 convention, one of the things that um So I'm a lot older than you. So I was a teenager during that uh, convention. And one of the things that was interesting that I had sort of forgotten that you talk about in the book, you know, I think of Lyndon Johnson as the president that presided over the Civil Rights Act, but there were some not nice uh, um, moments that you talk about that Lyndon Johnson was certainly not standing up to the reputation that I think a lot of him a lot of us think of him in. Uh, tell us about that. Cause that was at the same time that Mrs. Hamer was speaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, you know, one of his, his hangups was that, um, you know, he wanted to, uh, win an election, <laughs> you know, like he wanted to, <laughs> like all himself. politicians, right. You know, he wanted to prove himself as somebody who win a presidential election. I'd have it handed to you and things like that. And one of the fears that he had was if the if the democrats sort of went along with this these um folks in the south that he would lose the south right um because the democratic party was was a big party in the south i mean that uh, which is you know for younger white folks.
0: southerners white, white southerners
1: white, right yeah and so um so the idea so having these folks from mississippi show up in in new jersey and for him to give them the delegates which is what they went there for was to argue that they should have the delegates because they were hosting an actual democratic process as opposed to what was going on um from the state for him to do that his fear was that he would lose that south right and to you know and once you h- hear mrs hamer's speech it would be no doubt that they that people in Mississippi deserve these delegates and so what he did was he cut it off you know he uh interrupted the speech to give a special um a, a special presentation about something innocuous I can't even remember what it was it was like an appointment yeah. of uh, an the weather, something some secretary <laughs> something yeah it was something that that did not deserve to cut into this speech so he was you know that was a, um you know you ask anybody it was a cowardly act you know like it was a cowardly act of, of, from him and you know one of those those black guys on on his on his legacy
0: yeah, and and do you think he redeemed his reputation with the work he did in the second term?
1: Um, I don't. I mean, I I don't quite you know. I'm not a uh, sort of the political historian, the, yeah. The, the, yeah. about that sort of stuff. But I I do know that um, there are a lot of folks who still have never forgiven him for for that act for that act. For yeah, that yeah, for act. That, yeah. Yeah. So,
0: David, when you started. Writing this book uh, with your dad, how much did you know about the civil rights movement? Obviously, you were born decades after mm. the movement, and despite your father being so pivotal what what did you personally know
1: I knew his stories I knew a lot of his stories um, a, lot, a lot of the stories in the book I knew broad strokes of the stories um, just from hearing him and his friends um, sitting around the table talking about it, you know I knew sort of the very interpersonal what i didn't know all the way was the macro of the stories and and especially Mm -hmm. how the timelines worked um you know i knew you know dad mcgrevers i knew freedom rise i knew different things what i didn't really understand was how these things overlapped chronologically you know um one of my things was like i didn't want to i didn't want to get the book i don't want to write a book that's bogged down in downtime you know like i was like i don't want to write a book and then there's Something that happens in January, and then you got to write about procedural things. Then something happens in August, and I was like, "Well, that's going to be boring." But what I learned is that all of this stuff happened back to back to back. There right was
0: nothing the- boring.
1: Right. There was no. There was nothing boring. There was no rest. There was, you know, no vacations, no breaks. Everything just happened on top of each other. Um. You know, for for example, you know, Megar Evers. So we talk about Mrs. Hamer getting beaten in jail. Megger Evers was assassinated that same yeah.
0: In you know, his driveway. In
1: time right. Yeah. In his driveway at that same time. So there was, you know, that was probably the thing that was the most jarring to me was just how close all of these moments were to each other. I mean, the book is, it, it's a 250 page, 300 page book, and it takes place over the course of three years, you right. know? Um, and, and really, you know, to me, it, I, I knew my dad's age. You know, but when you're a kid and you hear your parents talking about their past, you still think of your parents, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it wasn't until I was trying to actually put myself in my dad's mind and put myself in his perspective that I realized that this is a kid, this is a child in, in a lot of this. That was another part of this that was that was eye open, that dad was, you know, 20 to 23 for, for pretty much the whole- board. I mean,
0: he was a freshman- when right. he first gotten, but he was a freshman at at dillard right, right yeah, uh, when he, yeah. so David, you had you know you talk about your father was gone and you had uh, this kind of um relationship with him that was at a remove to some degree how did how did writing this book change your relationship with your father
1: um It changed it for the the better, for sure. I mean, dad and I were at a place where um, you sort of get with your parents from time to time, or, you know, sometimes where you get to this age where it's like, well, they're old, you're older, whatever happened, happened. We're just going to ride out our relationship (laughs) into the the sunset and without talking about it, you know, like Mm -hmm. we hadn't hadn't done, you know, that was sort of the space we're in, which I think a lot of kids and parents can relate to
0: particularly fathers and sons right yeah
1: especially fathers and sons uh, especially black fathers and black sons of of just sort of being at this sort of standstill right and what this book forced us to do is to have the conversations that we would not have had you know dad and i would have had a a good relationship obviously we had a good enough relationship to even start this book but we would have had a good relationship if we had not done this book but now our relationship is 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 in a totally different totally better place because we've said the things that we need to say Mm. you know I've asked him the questions that I need to ask him he's answered the questions he's asked me questions he need to ask and we've talked it out and we have you know and I've put it on the page I mean the letter for those don't know I've written their book has three letters that I've written to dad and The letters were things that I had not said to him out loud before he read the letters, you know, and I gave them to him in the book process and said all the things that that I I felt like I needed to say to him in the process of writing these, and we talked, we talked through it, and I think that's, Mm. that's a a healing aspect of our relationship that would not have happened if we had not started this book.
0: You know, in the um, prologue to talk about a little bit, and in the interview uh, that I had mentioned, I. Uh, watched, you realize that your father and others involved in the civil rights movement were the equivalent of, you know, warriors, uh, uh, veterans who came back from the Vietnam War. And when your father got his law degree at the University of Michigan, and he met the psychiatrist, and he began to Understand that what was the writing of the book with you yet another another stage of his coming to grips with the trauma that he endured and the impact on him?
1: yeah. so one of the things I realized through the book was that um these civil rights veterans are war veterans. and you know my my sort of latest passion is that these veterans should be treated as such. They should be treated like war veterans in this country as people who. Um, fought a war to preserve, to create democracy in a a country that democracy was not there. And they did so under the, you know, threats of, well, not just threats, but they were bombed and they were spies and there was assassination. This was about as dangerous of of an installation of democracy as you can have in the world. And there does, you know, PTSD comes from that. And so there was uh, a lot of this stuff that my dad had buried away there are a lot of things that he had totally forgotten. You know, my dad's memory, um, according to other historians and people I've talked to, is is pretty good in terms of remembering things. In the movement, but in the most traumatic moments, there are things he just d- did not remember, like what happened the weekend Meg Reivers was killed. My dad just some of those things are just really hard to 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 come back to him. And he was digging up things that he he long buried uh, for a long time. And talking to other people since the book has come out and since that they you know they were reading these you know have read the book they have new memories that are coming out that mm. they had um they, they had totally forgotten about and so this is a a the scope of this is wide in terms of all of these veterans and what they went through and what they're still coping with
0: and you you have you you just did and you in the book describe uh the movement as a war. Um, and when you think about what you learned in writing this book, how angry uh, does it make you that so much was sacrificed then, yet the Black community is still enduring some of the same issues? I mean, you were in your own controversy when you wrote an article uh, right when Trump was elected. Was it right mm-hmm. before the Super Bowl? and your right, own yeah. family was threatened uh, today, right? right? Um 60 years after your father uh, was in the movement. So h- how does all that sit with you right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely frustrating, especially even since, I mean, since the book has come out, it seems like we've gone back decades. Backwards. Country, you know, which is, you know, there are places that I, I don't even want this book to be taught, I'm sure, you know. Um, and we are in a place where yeah it, it 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 is extremely frustrating however you know and and the book was sort of sort of began out of that frustration to be honest the book sort of started in this idea of you know what my my dad and his and his peers did and look at we're still trump is president and this is what's going on however what I've chosen to take from this is the hope that the you know hope from the book is that I, you know, I I can easily get bogged down in the frustration because it is very easy to just go, you know, look at the news and see what's going on, but what I'm what I'm choosing to glean from this is the hope that the people like the Mrs. Hambers of the world are still the spirit is still here, and then if these folks could have changed these things in the '60s, then then we can we can still affect change now.
0: And so, speaking of affecting uh, change. Uh before um, we go to the close of the book, it's pretty inspiring to see your dad now. So he goes back to Mississippi. Um, he reunites with a number of his colleagues from the movement. And he gets seduced into partnering uh, up on the Algebra Project, which you know, I've done a lot of literacy work over the years, because I, you know, I feel like that's the key to, you know, the, the saying that if, you know, if you can't read to learn at fourth grade, you're, you're in trouble. So how do you make sure at birth that you're hearing language and words and being read to, and it was pretty inspiring to think about the work your dad's now doing on the algebra project. So tell us, about your dad today?
1: Yeah, so dad is is still moving and shaking. People have been asking me, you know, like the travel and stuff for the book. How is your dad doing? Like, ask me how I'm doing. Dad is used to traveling. He hasn't stopped being on the road. (laughs) I'm the one that's trying to to keep up with him. So he has uh, been doing algebra project work for 30 years now, um, which is, you know, trying to increase math literacy uh, you know him. Him and Bob Moses' idea was that the the next sort of frontier was was math literacy. The gap was um, was performance in math, and so they are just uh, you know Bob Moses passed last year, but Dad is sort of um, keeping keeping things going with the Southern Initiative of the Algebra Project. And what they're doing is pushing um, these programs into these schools and helping um, you know young kids uh understand math get better math perform better to sort of close that that performance gap
0: and 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 your dad's like oh, just about to turn 81
1: he is about to turn 82 82
0: and I, yes and, and he just seems like he's caught a second wind or a third wind or a fourth wind I whatever
1: know, i don't know what kind of wind he has but it's more than i have he's <laughs> so I mean, he's, he's uh you know, he, we were out in in New Orleans for Essence Fest and he was up all night and, and partying and having a good time. So I don't know where he gets it from, but he does not, does not stop at all. So,
0: yeah. Um, David, so what, what's your hope for the book? What, what do you hope the reader um, comes away from the book having learned or experienced?
1: My hope is that the reader, you know, I think, when we think about what's going on in the world, everything seems like too big for us like to handle, like turn on the news. Now there's Roe v. Wade, there's climate change. There is, you know, all these things that just feel like too overwhelming, right? And so the idea here is that, you know, if you, you don't have to solve everything, you know and you don't have to be Martin Luther King to be uh, an impactful part of the movement like this movement in this book is from sharecroppers to teachers to business people to college kids to churches to elders all these folks did something and so the idea is that if you do something and the person next to you does something and everybody you know just contributes in some sort of way then that's how we will impact change i think people will feel like oh if i'm not getting arrested or if i'm not you know, the, the leader, I, I might as well do nothing. But no, that's not how it works. Do something and you can be a part of, of, of a change that everybody's a part of and we can sort of, you know, get inspired to do things together.
0: Mm, I, I love that. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Sit back relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. And with new chapters each week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. June's Journey has tons of fun and unique features to keep you entertained. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in the detective league to put your skills to the test. Help June relive some of her fondest memories with the new memoir feature. Piece together her past to complete gorgeous albums and unlock exclusive awards like Island Beautifications. And let your imagination run wild by decorating and structuring your island to your own taste. I was surprised how much time I spent when I first played June's Journey. It's really inviting, and the more you play and the more secrets you find, the more you want to continue to solve the murder. It's also the perfect game to play, whether you're having your morning coffee right before you want to get to work, or like I do right before bed when I just need time to unwind. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. It's free to download and available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games, and join the 30 million fans. We all want to learn way more than what we have time for. How many books are on your Kindle list? How many email newsletters do you have unread in your inbox? Shortform is an easier way to learn the ideas you've always wanted to learn. Shortform makes the world's best guides to nonfiction books. They're like book summaries on steroids. They're super detailed so you can get the book's key points at a deep level They have interactive exercises to help you apply the ideas you just learned so you don't forget them like I do when I read a book. And they add smart insights, like connecting what one author thinks about another author. You end up understanding the ideas at a super deep level and building these awesome connections between ideas. For a 10-minute overview, check out the one-page summary, which is already better than other apps like Blinkist. Then to go deeper, read the full guide. Shortform also makes guides to important topics you should know, like inflation in the economy, strategies on how to run a better business, and what's happening with Bitcoin. They make these by collecting a lot of sources with different perspectives for a super objective, balanced treatment. Like Deep Work by Cal Newport, details very specific steps that I can take to focus and resist distractions, like social media, by strengthening my mental capacity, and how these simple steps is vital for our modern economy. I spend 20 minutes each morning reading Shortform to check out new books I've heard of, which helps in determine upcoming episodes of just the right book. So now, to get five days of unlimited access and an additional 20% discount on the annual subscription, join Shortform through our special link, shortform.com backslash book, Or click the link in the episode description. Once again, that's shortform.com backslash book.
0: Uh, So, what I'd like to do is close uh, with what you closed uh, the book with, because One of the many things that I really appreciated um, about the book was the relationship between you and your dad and your dad with your family. So if you would um, close out this interview for us by reading that piece.
1: The way we've grown to love each other more fully than we ever imagined is our movement against the odds that kept George Floyd and Eric Garner from watching their children grow old, and the destruction that kept Trayvon Martin and Ayanna Jones and Michael Brown and and Makaya Bryant from giving their parents grandbabies to love on. We don't love each other simply in spite of what white supremacy has tried to do to us, but we had to claw through rubble, dodge mines, and bandage deep gashes on the way to become father and son because we wanted to give each other the best of what we had. To sit with my father, on an 80th birthday, that this country never wanted him to celebrate. And the heart of a virus that want to keep us physically distant is our victory. To watch dad play Nintendo and card games with his grandchildren, who a few weeks later, he started having bi-weekly Zoom meetings with to talk about his time in the movement, to show them the man I spent my life looking for, to make sure they too truly see him. It's all a continuation of the power it took for him to open himself to me so I can transcribe his entire life on these pages. It's the determination to see ourselves for who we are and love each other harder than this country has hated us. We're sitting in a miracle that should not have to be. Later on the night of his 80th birthday, my dad finally settled himself from the shock of our surprise visit, took a sip of red wine, and looked off to some other place over the horizon. I'm ready. I'm ready for this story to be told. I'm not running from it anymore. I've done some bad things. I've told myself my whole life that I have regrets, but I think if I'd done anything different, I don't know what I would that I would be here with you all right now. I can't imagine doing anything to lose this feeling that I have at this very moment in my life. This is who I am, and I'm okay with it.
0: Well, David Dennis uh, Jr., uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing this story of your dad, David Dennis senior, because along the way, I think we've been talking with David Dennis, the author of the movement made us a father, a son, and the legacy of a freedom ride.
1: You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody,
0: brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond,
1: and Lit uh, Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Felton. Thank you very
0: much. Mm -hmm. You can subscribe uh, to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.